Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hello, Laura. It's episode 30 of The Pig List. How's your week been? It is episode 30. I can't believe it. Uh, Great week, thank you. I have done some training with the Institute of Directors uh, about being a chair. I chair a couple of uh, boards as part of my portfolio career. So it was fantastic to take a a full day out uh, talking about what I should be doing more of and definitely what I should be doing less of. How about you? What have you been up to? I've also been doing quite a bit of training as the trainer, not the trainee, I should say. Um, I've been running some of my masterclasses, which focus on writing skills, editing skills, and also pitching skills. So that's been exciting. You'll notice this week we don't have an episode sponsor. So if you'd be interested in sponsoring the pick list, please just visit the website and click on the sponsor button. And we have a fantastic guest joining us for this week's episode. It's Emily Dore. Emily works in the strategic and corporate development team at Backervore, and she is super hot on all things FMCG trends, shopper behaviour, what's happening in the industry. So it was great to get her pick of articles and, of course, get her perspective on what's happening in the market at the moment. Please do rate and subscribe to the pick list. Let's start the show. Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, no, it's great to be on the podcast. I'm a keen listener, uh, so dream come true to actually feature on it. <laughs> well, fantastic. We love to hear that. Emily, why don't you briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners how you're connected to Feed and Drink? Absolutely. So I'm Emily Dore, and I'm part of the group strategy team at Backervore um, and lead sort of potential M&A opportunities as well as key strategic projects. So Backervore is the largest a supplier of fresh prepared food um, into the UK grocery retailers and you know some of you may not be familiar with Bacavore as a household name and that's because we're focused on own label products for the retailers so you won't see Bacavore in the packaging uh, but we've got a well-established presence in the UK we've got 25 manufacturing sites uh, doing a whole range of products that include things like chilled pizzas and ready meals and dips so I'm sure most of our listeners will probably have bought some of our products in the supermarket Um, And whilst it's a smaller part of our business, we do actually also have some operations in the US and China, uh, replicating what we do in the UK for the retailers. Fantastic. And and I know some of that sort of broad scope that that you you bring to your role is is reflected in the articles that you've uh, picked for us as well. And I know you're someone who who spends a lot of time looking at consumer trends, shopper behavior as part of what you do as well. So before we jump into your articles, I really wanted to ask you just your sense. We're still sort of just at the start of February. We're still looking ahead to what, what to expect this year. Could you just give us a sense of some of the key trends that you are personally really excited about for 20? 2021? I mean, I think it's um, one of those that's almost difficult to say in a way, because I think the year has started perhaps not as we expected and not as we hoped, as it were, uh, being in a lockdown again here in the UK. Um, But really, it's around kind of trying to see what sticks 
from you know all these shifts in consumer behaviors that we've seen through lockdown with people cooking more at home cooking from scratch um but also kind of supplementing their weekend treats with the takeaways and things and i guess it's seeing how that falls out in the in the months to come and, and ultimately the the phasing of that will be driven i think in a large part by the extent to which restrictions get lifted in the uk around the lockdown um but i think also just in terms of the kind of momentum behind veganism and health um clearly has really stepped on this year again i think i read you know like 600,000 people that signed up for veganuary officially this year and it was you know 400,000 last year so it's like huge i guess excitement and opportunity around that whole category and, and what that has to offer um and, and just the range of products um in that space which is really exciting Totally. And, and I think we'll get a couple of opportunities, actually, to dive into some of these trends, particularly health, but also um, that whole plant-based piece in a bit more detail with some of the articles we'll be talking about as well. Um, of course, as you know, the Picklist is all about sharing interesting articles about grocery and food and drink. So we do like to get that behind-the-scenes glimpse at our guests' reading habits. How do you keep up to date with what's happening in the industry? What does your reading routine look like? And what sort of <laughs> publications do you like reading? Um, it's, it's a funny one, actually, because I found almost with the whole lockdown and the way things are virtually, that actually reading really long form pieces is quite hard work. So I find actually some of the things that are a bit more like bulletin, short, short and snappy, are easier to absorb um but i mean the the likely suspects in terms of like Kantar for the kind of data reports and the grocery trends you know the grocer food manufacturer just food um all, all great sources of you know current news um you know clearly from a, a grocery perspective we get insight from our customers so you know i'm tapped into our own marketing team and, and customer teams around that that's getting kind of live feedback from from the retailers themselves. Uh, so those are probably the key bits that I use. Fantastic, great. Now tell us about your first article for us. Absolutely. Um, so my first pick is an article from Food Manufacturer, uh, which announces Unilever's trial of portable factories. Uh, so they explain that Unilever have effectively designed a manufacturing unit that operates within a 40 foot sea container um, you know, which can in theory be shipped to new locations across the world. Um, and the unit itself has been developed for liquid bouillon, so like the stock. Um, but they hope to use the technology for other food products, such as ice cream and ketchup and mayonnaise. And they're kind of seeing this as a new opportunity to access new locations, um, you know, make the most of local ingredients and be able to respond more quickly, in essence, to the sort of changing demand in local markets. I guess I found this really interesting as typically, you know, to establish a manufacturing presence in a new market, it's a hugely lengthy process. You've got to assess that market opportunity, the range of products, establish a customer pipeline, recruit local people, and ultimately, you know, make a huge investment to actually set up a factory and start up the business. And I guess this seems like it could provide a really sort of nimble, like low capital, low risk option actually enter and sort of test the potential opportunity in in a new market um and also sort of quite admired like the simplicity of the setup from what they described because it uh, definitely seems like 
Unilever have got the kind of developing markets in mind. They've got, it's only got one electricity cable and a single water hose to actually operate the unit. So it's a very much a sort of plug and play and you're, you're ready to go by the sounds of things. Um, and then the, the other piece for me was just around the fact the units are all run centrally. Well, that's their kind of plan. Um, and their Unilever's engineering manager sort of describes it as like a new dynamic model where thousands of nanofactories could be run from a central system, allowing us to have flexible pr production lines wherever and whenever needed. So it, it's that sort of cloud-based control, harnessing the data in a centralized way that again, it just adds to that flexibility. Um, so it seems like quite an exciting opportunity, I thought. I love this story and I hadn't spotted it and I totally agree. It's a great opportunity. Uh, and uh, as you say, you think for developing markets, this could work really well. The other thing I was thinking of when I read it, I thought this is perfect for these FMCGs to have presence at some of their key customers, isn't it? In terms of you could see one of these parked outside Tesco's HQ at Wellin and trying to get the buying team more involved with NPD and the processes that they go through and I guess because in a post-COVID world it'd be really interesting to see how much site visits are possible that actually that can be maybe a bit tricky for the supply chain so to keep that close connection with what's happening at a production angle through to their B2B customers you can see these popping up and maybe even as we've chatted about on the show so many times the whole D2C model could we see these popping up randomly where customers, consumers themselves can go and see how things can be manufactured with perspex sides. I don't know, I'm maybe even too far in the future, but I always think there's always this dark art in the supply chain and people are talking so much about this transparency in the supply chain and maybe Unilever have hooked onto something here that brings a consumer closer to it. Yeah, I also I just think that whole local production angle that you highlighted, Emily, as well, I think that's that's so attractive, isn't it? Again, in light of COVID, you know, so many companies are looking at bringing production closer to home are looking at sort of taking out some of that complexity just to avoid some of the, the disruptions that we've seen when, when borders start closing, again, in a post-Brexit or post-trade deal environment, also a, a key consideration. And just this idea that, you know, here you have a sort of fairly straightforward out-of-the-box setup that allows you to set up a local... Um, Production unit, I think, is uh, is is really really fascinating. I'd love to see how easy it is to scale that up to slightly more complex products than perhaps a bouillon. But um, yeah, I think the, um, the the potential is is fascinating, and uh, you know, again, that opportunity to potentially rent out these units in a sort of dark factory as opposed to dark kitchen model as well, I think, is uh, is is really interesting. Yeah, it actually reminded me a little bit of InFarm. I don't know whether you're familiar with them, but the vertical farming group that in a way the model reminded me of it because it's that sort of cloud-based central control of their, you know, salad herb growing units that they have. And this sort of sounded quite similar to that in a way. Julia, what's your first pick this week? Now, my first pick this week is from Reuters, and it's titled British Lockdowns Drive Acceleration in Grocery Sales Growth. It's basically an article about the latest Kantar grocery market figures, which came out earlier this week, and which I was really interested to talk to you both about. The Reuters article pulls out a few key stats, but there's also a helpful article on the Kantar website itself, which is worth reading, and we'll link to it in the show notes. 
So what are some other standout figures from that Cantab release? Well, first of all, there's a nice little stat about New Year's Eve. Lots of us ordered takeaway, I can certainly confirm that. Um, and as a result, delivery companies such as Just Eat and Deliveroo accounted for 6% of all online shopping trips on the 31st of December, which I thought was a, a nice standalone little nugget uh, of a stat there. But January, the big picture here is grocery sales have accelerated once more after Christmas, which is not a surprise given that that's when we went into national lockdown again. But it's always worth, I find, reminding ourselves of the scale that's involved here. So in January alone, says Kantar, shoppers spent a billion pounds more on supermarket food and drink items compared with the same four-week period last year. What did they spend that money on? Well, this is where things get interesting, and we're starting to talk about some of the sort of bigger trends that Emily talked about right at the start. So we had Veganuary, of course. Vegan rangers were bought by 6.6 million households in January, which is an increase of 10% year on year. And overall sales of vegan rangers during January were up 23% compared with 2020. So really strong growth. We also had dry January, and so no and low alcoholic drinks did well. Sales of no alcohol beer in particular was up 12%. But for many of us, January wasn't particularly dry this year, and alcohol sales, in fact, grew by £234 million. That's up 29% year on year. And I thought this interplay between the no and low trend on the one hand and the increase in booze sales on the other is really interesting, because essentially you have what sounds like two diametrically opposed trends happening at the same time. And it reminds me of what's happening with plant-based and meat and dairy sales as well, and some of the confusion this sometimes creates. I remember when the grocer's top product survey results came out at the end of 2020, meat and dairy had done really well. They were among the top performing categories. And there was quite a bit of commentary on social media essentially saying, well, look at this, plant-based is clearly massively overblown because look at how well meat and dairy are doing. But plant-based was also doing very well, just from a much smaller base. Plus, of course, some of those meat and dairy figures would have been boosted by displaced sales from food service. So it's you can be in this sort of interesting situation where two seemingly contradictory things can be true at the same time. Plant-based is growing massively and meat and dairy have done very well. And low and low is a really significant trend and booze sales have also done very well. And I just thought that was a particularly useful reminder to look at that nuance in these figures and to contextualize them and, I suppose, be quite wary of black and white statements from either side, really. You know, everyone's going vegan versus plant-based is totally overblown, or no one's drinking booze anymore versus everyone's developing a really heavy drinking habit to get through lockdown. It's it's about looking at those different consumer groups that are looking for different things and even acknowledging that you know individual consumers can experiment at times with quite contradictory trends within their lives. So, Emily, what did you make of that, um, particularly those veganuary figures? And were there any particular stats that stood out to you in those uh, in, in that Cantar really release? Yeah, I mean, I think um, you're spot on there, just in terms of those sort of almost conflicting trends. I think I, I um, sort of termed it as like a polarisation of trends. You know, it's that kind of 
the other element being like health versus treats you know and I think there's that like maybe during the week people are a bit more healthy but actually they want to indulge a bit on the weekend because they can um and that kind of takeaway element probably plays into that as well as potentially trading up to have a more premium treat potentially for a pudding or something um so I thought that was was interesting um and then I guess the other element um just around the kind of online shopping uh, component of the report because I think you know they reported it's at record high 14% share in January and yeah it's equivalent to sort of six and a half million users effectively and it definitely just feels like that's that's here to stay um the online trend and it's really sticking as well with the older demographics by the sounds of things because we're all aware obviously with the sort of first lockdown there was that shift almost of the older demographic who previously would go to store physical store and sort of started to trial out online but it's it's really shown that that actually they're they're sticking with it and then they're probably getting a, a good experience um and the risk factor i guess of going to physical stores is still still there um so i thought that was kind of interesting to to call out um i guess it's it'll be interesting to see how some of the trends uh post lockdown so you know are people who are buying more booze those people who would typically have bought it in a restaurant or in a bar or a pub and therefore when we come out of lockdown is that going to fall away or are they just an underlying uh, trend that's going to be here to stay with the uh, more premium boozes as well as the no and lowers as you call it I thought one of the elements that you pulled out there, Emily, I also spotted and I thought was really interesting, the, the um, almost a third, 28% of online shoppers are retired, as, as you've alluded to, which I, I think is fascinating. And when you spend some time looking at these retailers' propositions online, some of them are quite complex and some of them aren't. And I think uh, thinking of the sort of devices that these retired folks have, and I know that's a huge catchment retired, but you know, you, you're ranging from sort of someone in their early 60s, maybe that's got a load of tech and, and familiar with it, someone you know, well into their 80s and maybe only got an old iPad. And you know, retailers will need to be looking at how they can evolve this more and more. And I suppose maybe that could be one of the reasons that Morrison's are one of the big winners in that data and that report that they pivoted so quickly, didn't they, in terms of, I guess, their vertical integration model that they could do all these different boxes that we spoke about last season and uh, all these different meals and, and opportunities and you could just fit, ring up and you didn't have to order on, on, on a computer. It's really interesting about how, how they put all these different elements into play. But I love the Cantar figures when they come out and uh, having a watch of Fraser's uh, video to see his readout on it all. It's fascinating and uh, understandably very interested in the meat figures. <laughs> yeah, totally. I think they headed it. Uh, the headline this time was sort of um, resolutions versus reality, which I thought was a was a particularly nice way of uh, of looking at how we'd actually behaved in uh, in in January. But I think Laura, the point that you're making about you know how retailers will look at their e-commerce sites and just making sure they're adapting to a wider range of demographics that are using them, I think is so true. And it's also just about you know, evolving those websites more generally because they are still quite functional, I'd say. You know, there's not an awful lot around sort of storytelling and really, you know, helping product discovery. So all of those big questions around 
how do you launch NPD successfully online if you're, you know, a really big chunk of your your target market is now discovering new products uh, through online? Feels like we've got a long way to go until we have something that that really gets to grips with that. Thora, what's your first pick for us? So my first pick this week is cardboard. Last week I spoke about plastic, so there's a theme emerging. I don't know what I'm going to do next week. Watch this space. So my article is from the Sunday Times, and it's your wine deliveries delayed. Amazon has all the cardboard boxes. And I was really interested to see this story in mainstream press because it's something that I've been picking up from the trade, actually, for the last couple of months, um, both in the meat sector and other food sectors, struggling to get packaging at the lead time that they normally do. So I think that the Sunday Times does a fantastic job of putting into perspective and speaking to to some of the key players in the market so basically what's happening is some of the big players like amazon are saying in this article that they have a 12-month rolling cycle on planning what they need in terms of cardboard uh, and whereas some of these smaller uh, niche suppliers like wine um, box services don't have such long lead times they would normally order cardboard two to three weeks in advance and then it would be delivered and that's been pushed out now to up to five weeks and the cardboard um, trade association is talking about there's uh, five times the amount of demand there was uh, pre-pandemic uh, um, and what that's meaning is that having to to invest heavily and there's a lot of capex going on into it in industry here but you know that as we know that takes time to get up and running and, and to, to put into flow and what this is all coming down to the fact is we are still recycling when we get our cardboard at home but because we're recycling and obviously that can sit in your recycling bin at home for a fortnight the time it's collected it puts a lag into the system and whereas if you were um, a shop and you were putting cardboard into your recycling bin then that would be you know higher quantity recycled more quickly but there's this perceived recycle lag and the article spells out about the amazon effect which I, i thought was really interesting and and really simple but I hadn't really considered it that now we would get a a toy for example uh, 10 toys would be in a box a single box for a retailer and it would come and it would be easy to put that single box into the recycle now through Amazon it's 10 boxes because it all comes through our letterbox so the supply has just gone up um uh sorry the demand has gone up and the supply obviously hasn't quite kept at pace so In the short term, it's affecting lots of different players, lots of SMEs and those folks that just haven't got the long-term contracts. And even some bigger players that I've been speaking to in the food sector are are struggling too to to meet that demand that their customer wants. Because it's really tough in a tight supply chain. Yeah, no, definitely. And it it really highlighted the kind of scale, I guess, of the impact of this um, change in in buying habits over the last year and the shift in the consumer behaviour. And actually you know, sort of systemic change of this magnitude, I imagine, you know, would typically be phased in over a period of of years, ultimately, and actually it's happened in less than 12 months. So it's sort of no surprise in a way that um, the supply chain is creaking a bit um, in response. But it's an interesting space, and I wasn't sure um, to what extent um, some of the indications from China around their recycling and the restrictions around what they're importing or not importing was having on this because I think there was something last year which suggested they were no longer going to be importing um, you know sort of cardboard paper goods um, because the majority of recycling happens there I don't think that's happened yet but it will is likely probably to happen by the end of this year but I didn't know whether there was an element of that at play here as well 
in terms of the supply of recycled cardboard coming in from China. Um, yeah, maybe maybe that's causing some of the, the holdups as well. Yeah, so it's a really good point. And, and like you, I, I'm also not sure to what extent that is actually exacerbating the situation as well. So what you were just saying about having some of these, you know, sort of systemic changes and, and shocks to the system that sort of happen suddenly rather than over a period of time. I did read in the US press over the past week that there are some reports there that the demand on dry ice as a result of vaccination programs, which of course, you know, certain vaccines rely really heavily on that, that that is starting to have an impact on some of their grocery supply chains in terms of delivery um, of, of certain goods. It's not something I've picked up on here, but um, it would be really interesting to see whether that, again, is something that, that could potentially filter down. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, there was also uh, sort of in the summer last year, I think the BBC reported on what they called sort of beige gold. So it's all theft around cardboard. And actually, you know, it's quite lucrative business um, to sell on cardboard to then be recycled. And they were citing um, issues in Spain where there were sort of gangs, you know, effectively just taking all the cardboard out the recycling bins and um, off the streets and people putting it out on the road for collection and selling it off um, to China, <laughs> effectively. Um, and I guess you just wonder in the, the current environment now if um, that cardboard supply chain is really under pressure whether they, um, you know, that kind of cardboard theft is going to be on the rise. Yeah, I know. So it's a really good point. I do remember that article very well because I, I, I remember seeing it and thinking, there's just always something. Wherever you look, there's like a fascinating backstory uh, that you never thought of. Who'd have thought of cardboard theft? But once you start looking at the figures involved, you can see why there's a, there's a very uh, yeah thriving cardboard theft community out there as well. Emily, tell us about your second pick for us. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so my second pick uh, was an article where the title just caught my eye. Uh, so it's from The Guardian. Um, it's called Grubs Up. Mealworms are on the menu, but are we ready for them? Um, and the article actually starts with Sam Williston, the journalist, sort of very apprehensively describing his experience of eating a mealworm, which kind of made me laugh. Um, so he says, dry because it's been dried, a little crunchy, not strongly flavoured, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Salt would probably help or chilli or lime, something, anything to spice it up a bit and definitely a beer. If I was going to consume much more to help wash it down. Uh, so, yeah, that caught my eye and intrigued me to understand more. Um, but in essence, so mealworms are sort of small yellow grubs that are often used to feed birds. Um, but many people think they could be a nutritious source of food with potential sort of environmental and economic benefits. And scientists at the European Food Safety Agency have given the green light for mealworms to be sold as human foodstuff in the EU. Um, and this, you know, ultimately is a move that means they could appear on supermarket shelves and in kitchens across the continent. Um, it's actually already legal to sell insects as human food in the UK. Um, but the EFSA's ruling is expected to sort of give the meal market as a whole a bit of a boost. And I guess it's a really interesting one because whilst, you know, there are definitely a number of attributes that make mealworms and other insects like an attractive meat or protein substitute with the lower CO2 emissions, you know, reduced water and land requirement than, say, traditional livestock. 
And, you know, if I were Chris Whitty, I'd be quoting the science says. <laughs> but, you know, the reality is, will people be able to sort of get over that, you know, the, the yuck factor, as it were, um, and kind of integrate them into their, their diet? Um, but interestingly, it, it's very much a kind of Western European perception in terms of fearing insects and they're sort of a proxy for disease. But actually, um, it was interesting to read that around 80% of the population is actually familiar with insects in their diet globally. Um, so in a way, we're sort of the minority here in Europe. Um, and I just thought it raised an interesting question around how this will be overcome because it probably feels like insects are going to be a source of protein in our diet going forward um but you know what marketing strategies are going to be employed to i guess convince us consumers that this is something we do want to eat or else maybe hide it in our food so we don't know we're eating it but we're getting the nutritional benefits so I was, again, really fascinated by this one, mainly because I do buy, buy a lot of mealworms, but I've put them in the bird feeder. And I, when I when I open the, the backpack pouch, I think, oh, I don't like that smell. So, But I don't know if they're the yellow ones that have just been approved, so they might be a different breed. But um, you're right in terms of it, but if they're ground up or, you know, either, we, you know, we talk about, don't we, about if it's gone in animal feed or if it's a, an ingredient in our feed, and you're right, it's about these nutritional benefits. And as we've just been talking about the Kantar data, people are wanting health, they're wanting sustainability, they're wanting these levers going forward. So if it's a component part and, and I liked, as you say, the yuck factor comment, if we can get over that somehow, then... I think it could be branded quite well, um, but yeah, de definitely personal experience, not quite yet, not in its whole form. I think I think branding and, and turning it into products that we're a little bit more comfortable with, I think, is going to be key. I mean, pet food is another um, opportunity there. And I think it's quite interesting to see how the di uh, discussion around lab-grown meat is also starting to pick up in the pet food sector. Again, it's sort of being seen as a, as a potentially slightly easier route into the market. Um, so I could see, you know, the potential for, for sort of insect protein there as well. And there are startups that are already exploring that as well. And yeah, then I think it's it's about, you know, do you turn it into a flower? Does it become an addition? Does it add great sustainable protein to something without it being about eating insects? And I think some of the brands that are in the market are really caught in that difficult position because the fact that it's insect protein is they is is their USP. So you want to shout about that, but it does keep it a very novelty sort of niche. Um, and I think in order for, for, for that mainstream appeal to happen in, in countries like the UK, you almost need to stop talking about grubs and stop having little crickets on your packaging and just make normalise it a little bit more. Um, it feels like that might be a, a more productive way to, to get people to embrace it. But also I do appreciate the difficulty that, you know, if you're being super innovative and you're embracing insect protein, you do want to tell consumers about that as well. But yeah, it, it just keeps it a little bit in that that novelty sector too much for my liking. And not to trivialise it, but we've spent 20 years watching I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here in this country <laughs> where they eat bugs and it's perceived as a bad thing. <laughs> and so and it's a trial and it's negative so and that that will that will be in our nation's psyche like it or not even if it's a subconscious thing 
Yeah, interestingly, they did say that if you have been to, say, foreign countries where there are insects, like in the markets, where you might have sampled it as like a, a one-off on holiday, you are more likely to buy sort of an insect-based uh, product, like in your home market, albeit it didn't then go on to say whether or not you'd choose to repeat purchase. You know, maybe it's more <laughs> of a one-off experiment. <laughs> um, <but> yeah. <laughs> I like it. Julia, what's your second pick this week? My second pick this week is from Sifted, and it's an article titled, This Startup Has Invented an Ice Cream with Fat You Can't Absorb. So we're keeping with the sort of slight novelty ingredient theme here. Um, the startup in question is Lub Foods from Sweden, which is using a special plant-based fat called EPG, which the body cannot absorb. Um, so when you're using EPG, you can cut up to 92% of calories for each unit of fat in products like ice cream, according to Love Foods. Now, of course, this uh, is potentially a great benefit given our concern about obesity rates and, of course, the sort of wider debate around health and consumer trend um, or consumer demand for, for calorie reduction. Um, and the article points out that that is a market worth $10 billion a year at the moment, and it's forecast to grow by another $3 billion in seven years. Much of this market at the moment is focused on sugar reduction, and in fact, that's where Love Foods started out as well. The founder was diagnosed as pre-diabetic, and so initially the company looked at sugar-free NPD, um, and they do have several products, uh, sugar-free products in the market. But now they're saying fat is becoming more and more of a focus across the industry, and not just in the sense of cutting out fat and replacing it often with sugar, as, as we have seen in, in sort of traditional calorie-reduced products, but actually replacing it with new, smarter versions of fat. Fats that deliver pretty good mouthfeel and taste and other sensory properties, but just don't have the same calorie hit. And this product, the Love Foods EPG ice cream, is now already available in the US and has been since 2019. It's not yet available in Europe, largely because regulators have been slower to approve novel foods. But the company says it's expecting EU approval within the next two to three years. And I thought this was a really interesting innovation story. I wasn't aware of this uh, particular fat and uh, the potential it has. But I also was really keen to get both of your takes on this, because on the one hand, the article talks about consumer demand for new innovative ingredients that help us you know, tackle these big challenges like obesity, like health. But on the other hand, we also know that consumers, including in the UK, I would say, can be quite sceptical about anything that sounds like their food has been messed with or that perhaps isn't natural. So how do retailers, how do suppliers square that? You know, how would you expect the UK market to embrace more and more of these smart new ingredients? Or would you expect UK consumers to stay sort of reasonably conservative when it comes to embracing these, these new ingredients? I don't know, Emily, what do you think? Yeah, it's a really tricky one, actually, because I think there is that desire to sort of indulge without feeling guilty but maybe at what cost um or, or not what cost but yeah depending on that individual's um appetite to do something a bit different 
but they just want a treat and they don't really care what's in it or they want a treat that they can trust and um they kind of understand I guess the the ingredients within it um and maybe there is an element of that around education because I think that's where it comes from where people are maybe a bit apprehensive it's, it's a potential risk you know this is brand new to market uh, I don't really know what all these acronyms mean um often acronyms on the back of the packet are not a good sign you have additives and all sorts historically um so there may be some nervousness around it perhaps um but then equally um I mean thinking of sort of lower calorie ice cream like a halo top which clearly everyone is aware of now has delivered exponential growth with a, a low calorie um ice cream offering and I don't think too many people have well there hasn't been too much bad press around what exactly is in this and therefore I don't want to eat it it seems like it's provided a solution for consumers that otherwise had a space of very high calorie uh, products and this sort of ticked the box uh, for something that tasted really good but was slightly better for you um, so yeah we'll see I guess it depends whether there ends up being any um, case studies around the EPG and the side effects of it um, and I guess where the EFSA get to um, in terms of their review of the product. And I think I totally agree with you Emily and I think some trailblazers in that sort of ice cream category be it Palo Top or Skinny Cow have given space for more uh, transformation and new product formats and I guess if it's and an, I should have probably looked further is it in a tub only because you think sometimes that's more indulgent and you, you're not in control of portion size I definitely aren't when I get the Ben and Jerry's out the freezer with a spoon uh, but if it's something that's on it you know like skinny cow more on a stick and you're thinking it's maybe a midweek treat and the kids are having all these other things and you know it's something for maybe and more of an adult market um I, I don't know but I think I, I think it has got a huge opportunity and I think as, as we've said the key is in the branding here to simplify the tech and make it clear to consumers that it's nothing to be concerned about it's as we spoke about the the mealworms it's had a in time it'll ha have approval and what that means and how you can feel safe and I guess maybe and it's I guess maybe I'm being too aspirational here but we've already mentioned Chris Whitty this show that do we just need to trust the experts more and we'll, we've had so much time and by the time this launches uh, in Europe and the UK we'll have listened to you know vaccine messages about trust the experts it's approved and maybe this is the same for food market you know we've approved it it's fine it's safe for you to eat and then that I guess allows consumers to buy into things more easy maybe that's my rose tinted spectacles I'm not sure but there's maybe an opportunity in there somewhere I think it's a it's I think it's a really interesting point I always find that when it comes to food we have really contradictory impulses on this though because yes on the one hand you know I think there can be quite a lot of scaremongering around any form of processing as well but on the other hand, we are also looking for consumers to um, take more of an interest in things like provenance. How's my food produced? Where does it come from? Really caring about how that product was created. And it just feels that that level of engagement still happens a little bit more naturally around processes that we can really understand and that we could potentially reproduce in our own kitchens. It just helps to get our heads around what this product is and why we can trust it. And I think it's going to be a really big challenge. And as you both said, branding and 
you know, really breaking down a sort of slightly scary sounding science, I think will we'll have to play a, a really big part in that. So that even though it's a process you can, can't do in your own kitchen and it's an ingredient you can't buy in the supermarket that you're not familiar with, you trust it because you understand um, how it's been approved and, and the function it plays in the food. And I suppose if ultimately it means that you can have um, guilt-free ice cream, that might also be the selling point that, that then does it. Nora, what's your second pick for us? Uh, my second pick this week is from The Grocer, and it's PepsiCo and Beyond Meat launch win-win joint venture. And unsurprisingly, anything that has meat in the title, I'm uh, always keen to have a look at. So this is a, a bit of a surprise joint venture between um, Beyond Meat and PepsiCo. Uh, and this is uh, helping um, PepsiCo have more of a plant-based offering across snacking and beveraging, um, beverage rather. And I was interested just to do a bit of my own research to understand, particularly US side, how much are PepsiCo in the meat market? Uh, and apart from beef jerky, not a lot. So this isn't, as we've seen other joint ventures happen, you know, with the likes of McDonald's and Beyond Meat, this isn't a big, strong meat player that's wanting a meat-free option brought into their portfolio. This is quite an, an unusual coupling. So so the article goes on to say the joint venture will um, look around a new range of products looking at sustainability, uh, ethical sourcing and health. Particularly in the US market, it's quoting one in five US customers are considering ethical sourced ingredients, uh, particularly as a priority for their buying behaviour in 2021. Um, so as I say, win-win, Beyond Meat uh, allows them to grow and it allows PepsiCo to diversify. But it just seems such an unusual coupling and not only, I guess, for um, organisations that are in different, very different categories, but also culturally as well. You have a, this big US FMCG player um, and um, obviously Beyond Meat is worth the 12 billion US dollars now so a big player in its own right uh, share prices went up 20% when this was announced but just you know you've got Ethan Brown leading Beyond Meat talking this week at a UN conference about the perception of meat and actually if we change our perception of meat eating vegetables offers exactly the same thing so it's PepsiCo really nailing the colours to the mast here um, so I think it's going to be a fascinating one to watch and see what new products come out of this uh, planet uh, partnership. I thought it was interesting as well, just the fact that they chose to go down the JV route, because I think PepsiCo do have a couple of, um, you know, smaller funds, I guess, allocated to these kind of startups where they can have a minority investment. Um, so I guess creating a joint venture was actually quite a departure from, from that as well, which I thought was quite interesting and clearly like a much bigger, bolder move by PepsiCo into this space. Um, and the point you mentioned around culture, I guess it always comes up when sort of large FMCG players um, choose to acquire some of these smaller startup high growth businesses. And, you know, um, one that came to mind uh, a couple of months ago was obviously in November with Nestle securing a, mon a majority stake in Mindful Chef. And it's that, um, that marriage of <laughs> different priorities and um, ways, of ways of working, I guess, and how you don't uh, suffocate the innovation and the startupness of the business, but equally you're looking to try and integrate it into a much larger organisation. 
Yeah, I think it's a it's an absolutely fascinating tie up. And as you both said, I just want to see what products they're going to come up with. I mean, I suppose we we think beyond meat, and and we 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 think burger alternatives. But of course, you know that market is is really moving away from that. You know, beyond meat's own product range, particularly in the US, is is much wider than that now. Um, PepsiCo obviously is in snacking. You know, Beyond Meat was one of the companies that really pioneered use of yellow split peas. They have fantastic expertise and fantastic supply chain relationships in that. You know, it, are there opportunities there in snacking to use what is a really high protein crop that's that's gained a lot of currency in in some of the NPD? I think that that's potentially something that would be quite interesting. And I suppose you are also in a JV like that really getting a front row seat as PepsiCo to what is driving that market. You know, you are being talked through and you're learning the category through one of the pioneers in that category. I imagine that in and of itself must be must be hugely valuable. I recently um, wrote an article for The Grocer about um, growth prospects in, in plant-based. And one of the things I was really struck by was that um, when people were talking about, you know, where's that next wave of growth going to come from? It really isn't necessarily going to be in those meat alternatives, that those sort of classic products that start at the trend, because how many plant-based burgers can you, you know, ultimately engage consumers with? And it is much more about, um, you know, driving that trend into, into other categories beyond chilled, more into frozen, where we've already seen bird's eye, uh, obviously working really hard, more ambient products, you know, it's it's your Hellman vegan um, variant as opposed to necessarily yet another yet another patty. So that would be my expectation. I'm thinking snacking and using some of that yellow pea production expertise perhaps to um, to to see what what you can do with uh, with with those sort of plant based products in in PepsiCo's offering, but yeah, it'll be fascinating to see. Emily, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thanks so much for having me. It was uh, great to have some lively debate about the latest trends. So thank you. <laughs> We've loved it. Thank you. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.